Hi everyone, welcome to Bad Apple. I'm Helen. And I'm Riley. And I don't know if you can hear this, but we have a new microphone. New and improved Bad Apple. Hell yeah. I can't believe that it's taken us, (laughs) what is it, 39 episodes to upgrade our audio. We're no longer sitting in the car, guys. I suppose we should mention that we were actually lucky enough to get a grant So we got some funding, which helped us buy our new microphone. Yeah. From the Fame Law Student Society, which is one of the societies at Melbourne Law School where I go to uni. And they were kind enough to select us for a grant. So shout out to to Fame. Thanks, Fame. Thanks, Fame. Our biggest supports. Today we discuss the Perth Mint Swindle, which, very important distinction, was not a robbery. It was a swindle because there was no physical violence or force used to take the gold. It was fraud. Fraudulent. Fraudulent swindling. Swindling is such a great word. Right? I imagine like like Robin Hood, like flying down on a rope and like reaching down and like just scooping up all the gold and then flying off on the rope. I imagine like one swift action... (laughs) With the word swindle. Mm. It's a bit like, ooh, and it's done. It's gone. It's gone. You never see it again. Yeah. On the 22nd of June, 1982, three couriers cashed three very large checks at the Perth Mint on Hay Street in East Perth. By the way, a mint is a bank. A mint is kind of like a bank. People store gold there. Um, they're usually state-run and... They usually make coins. So the phrase, like, if something's, like, freshly minted, it's just been made. You could say it was just coined. Yeah, just coined. Freshly minted. Wow. That's where that phrase comes from. These three checks had a total value of 49 gold bars, weighing 68 kilograms and amounting to 653,000 Australian dollars. Today, the gold would be worth more than $3.7 million dollars. The couriers picked up the gold and took it to an office in Perth, then onto Jandicott Airport, southeast of Perth. The gold was never seen again, and back at the mint, staff realised that the cheques were valueless and the signatures had been forged. They'd been swindled. In 1982, the security procedures at the Perth mint were relatively lax. While it certainly made the swindling easy to carry out, it also meant that an extremely small number of clues were left behind. Leading the investigation was notorious Detective Sergeant Don Hancock. Don had experience in the gold-stealing detection squad before transferring to the Perth Criminal Investigation Branch. But even for someone with this much experience, the leads were slim and it was going to be difficult to work out who had pulled this off. Despite this though, somehow, just over a month later, Don Hancock was prepared to make an arrest. On July 26th, Don executed a warrant for the arrest of Peter Mickelberg. Peter was one of three brothers who had come to police attention in relation to the crime through some circumstantial evidence. The brothers, Raymond, Peter and Brian, were prosperous abalone divers. Raymond, who usually went by Ray, had served some time in the Special Air Service, including a tour to Vietnam. In terms of previous convictions, Peter had once been fined $50 for possessing an unlicensed firearm. But apart from that, they were what the police would call clean skins, as they didn't have any criminal history. After his arrest, Peter was taken to Belmont Police Station, a smaller station in the suburbs of Perth. The headquarters of the investigation was in the centre of Perth, 
at a much busier station. Belmont had far less officers and was a much quieter place to carry out an interrogation, especially if they were planning to employ some unconventional policing techniques. Even more suspicious was that by the time Peter arrived, all the regular officers at Belmont had gone home. The station was empty except for Peter, Don, and a junior detective, Tony Lewandowski. During this interrogation, Don and Tony state that Peter confessed to the crimes and implicated his two brothers as well, even though these statements were never signed. Peter, on the other hand, tells a completely different story of how this interrogation went down. He says that after he was taken to the station, Don and Tony took him into the interview room, where Don said, quote, This is where you die, you little fucker. I'm going to hazard a guess and say it probably sounded more intimidating than that. Probably. Don't but hire me. You did a good job. Don't hire me to be a corrupt police chief. <laughs> Peter then asked for a solicitor, to which Tony replied, You're on another planet. No one knows you're here. As far as they're concerned, you could be dead. After this, Peter was made to take his clothes off, before he was handcuffed and seated. Sitting naked in the chair, Peter says that Don approached him and punched him two or three times in the solar plexus. Yeah, it's like like right between where your ribs... Oh, that hurts. Yeah, like where that gap is in your ribs below your sternum. Mm. That soft, squishy bit. In between stomach and sternum. Where your first abs begin. Yeah. If you are so inclined to have abdominals. Yes. <laughs> Muscles. Where... <laughs> <laughs> the first two abs. Yeah. Peter says that even after this, he didn't make any admissions relating to the stolen gold, nor did he mention the involvement of any of his brothers. Despite this, the investigation into the Mickelberg brothers went ahead. It seemed that they had their offender, and the rest of the investigation centred around gathering enough evidence to make the charges stick. The evidence that the police did have was the three checks that were tendered to the Mint, so it was crucial to link these checks to the Mickelberg brothers. The three check forms were legitimate, and belonged to two businesses, the Conti Sheffield Estate Agency and H.L. Bradbury & Associates. Both of these business premises had been broken into and set alight in April and May 1982, just prior to the swindle. It's alleged that the bank checks were stolen by whoever had broken into the businesses, but there was no evidence which linked the Mickelbergs to the break-ins. On the 24th of June 1982, police observed the presence of a fingerprint on the back of one of the checks, and it was treated with a chemical called ninhydrin, which allows latent fingerprints to develop. After the treatment, it was put aside for around three weeks, until the 15th of July. By this time, a better quality print was visible on the check, and it was photographed. In the hopes of getting a clearer print still, it was sent to Canberra on the 16th of July for further treatment, so that the print could be enhanced. Photographs were taken of the enhanced fingerprint, and the film negatives were sent back to Perth on the 26th of July. With these images of the fingerprint, police were able to match it to the right index finger of Raymond Mickelberg. Interestingly, Ray had a hobby of creating casts of his hands out of brass, plastic, rubber and perspex. On the 15th of July, the day before the check was sent to Canberra, police seized around 20 hands, giving rise to the theory that they had somehow obtained a print from one of these casts and applied it to the check. Either way, Ray's fingerprint on the back of the check was evidence which supported the theory that Ray, the oldest brother, had been the ringleader of the operation. What could he possibly have been doing that for? That's a great question. I'm not sure if I want to guess. I'm just going to say 20 is a lot. You're an artist. Imagine a... What do you think? I'm not saying this man did it for art. <laughs> 20 is a lot. 
Imagine a room of 20 hens. I think they were in the lounge room too. Like they were just sitting oh God. there. <laughs> it is funny that they like seized all of them. Yeah. They were like, they went in, they're like, you know what? We need all of these. We need all of these. That's hands. so true. What? Just take Why? one. Don't take any. Why would you think, why would they be related to the swindle? I don't know. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah. It, Great you point. Know, maybe they just took offense. They were grasping at anything they mm. could get their hands on. Oh. Shameless. Oh. I'll hand it to you. <laughs> You're pretty good at that. But we need to continue. Yeah. <laughs> Further supporting this theory was that all of the checks had been typed on using the same typewriter. On the two checks which did not feature Ray's fingerprint, there was a number which corresponded to the account number which was linked to an account held by Peter Gully, an account owned by Ray in a false name. There was a growing body of witness evidence linking Peter to the scene of the crime as well. On the 22nd of June, the day of the swindling, a Perth couple, Mr and Mrs Allen, sold a car to a young man. It was a 1965 Ford Falcon. This young man gave them a handwritten note which included a name and address for them to send the registration papers to. Naturally, this didn't feature Peter's name nor his address, but a handwriting expert deduced that it was Peter's handwriting. Later this same day, a man named Mr. Henry observed the same car that the Allens had sold driving in the vicinity of the office premises where the gold was taken, around the time that the checks were presented to the Mint. The descriptions given by Mr. and Mrs. Allen and Mr. Henry matched. However, this description didn't fit that of Peter Mickelberg. Fortunately for the police, Mr. Allen admitted that the man was wearing glasses and possibly a wig in an attempt to create a disguise. With this information, a police artist prepared a transparent overlay depicting the glasses and wig as described, which could be placed over other photos and identikit sketches to mimic the disguise. The artist also drew the wig and glasses onto a passport photograph of Peter. There was also a drawing produced with the help of Mr. Henry, which depicted the facial features of the man he saw driving the car. There is no clear resemblance between the facial features of this drawing and the passport photograph of Peter. There is plenty of conjecture around the accuracy of these sketches, and whether the sketch created using the description given by Mr. Henry had actually been influenced by seeing Peter's passport photo. But this is pretty unlikely, given the timing of the sketches, as well as the fact that there really wasn't a clear resemblance. Now that the police had linked both Ray and Peter to the crime, they arrested all three brothers and committed them to trial. At trial, the brothers each stood charged with one count of conspiring to defraud the director of the Perth Mint, two counts of breaking and entering, and two of arson, relating to obtaining the cheques, and three counts of obtaining gold by falsely pretending that a cheque was a good and valid security for that amount. The publicity surrounding the Mickelberg family in 1982 prompted a little more investigation into the family's past, and just as the brothers were preparing for their trial for the swindle, the three brothers, their parents, and a man named Brian Pozzi were charged with a conspiracy to commit fraud over the Yellow Rose of Texas scandal. The Yellow Rose of Texas was a manufactured gold nugget, which was purchased by Perth businessman Alan Bond in November 1980 for around $350,000. The family went to the media to tell the story of how the nugget had been unearthed by an unnamed elderly female prospector, when in reality, it was man-made. Initially, the family just intended to use the discovery of the nugget to generate publicity for their new prospecting business but couldn't resist when there was so much financial interest in the man-made nugget. 
Film crews gathered at the Jandakot airport to broadcast the unnamed prospector carrying the large nugget off the plane. This woman was in fact Peggy Mickelberg, wearing a wig. Despite being valued at over $300,000 by a number of experts, just two years later, the nugget was discovered to be worth less than $150,000. All parties pled guilty at their trial, and Peggy was sentenced to nine months imprisonment. Can I just say, no one deserves to get conned. But if the opportunity presents itself... <laughs> and if the opportunity presents itself to con Alan Bond... <laughs> yeah. Potentially one of the greatest con men. You're conning the con man. It all's fair in con and war. In con wars. In con wars. You play the game, you gotta be prepared to copper L every now and again. Also, you're not rip- you're not rubbing a poor man, are you? Exactly. Like, sure, you charge them double the worth of the, you know. Yeah. But I doubt Alan Bond would have cared. Mm. I doubt he would have even checked. He probably wouldn't have even checked. Mm. Anyway. Well, it was only nine months. Maybe that was them recognising that. Yeah. That's very true. It's Alan Bond. Back to the trial for the swindle. Peter's defence raised significant concerns surrounding the witness evidence. And Ray's defence focused on the possibility that the fingerprint was planted on the cheque following the seizure of the handcasts from the home. There was no physical evidence which linked Brian to the crime. So essentially, he was relying on his brothers proving their innocence. Poor Brian... Poor Brian. Well, we'll soon hear about Brian. Don't you worry about him. That's true. But he had no prior criminal convictions. He kind of just got dragged along. Damn, that's the worst. Yeah. When your two brothers are just shitheads. Yeah. In court, Mr. and Mrs. Allen, who had sold the Ford Falcon on the day of the crime, were not able to positively identify Peter as the man who they sold the car to. Nor was Mr. Henry able to identify Peter as the man who he saw driving the car near the office building. Furthermore, Mr. Henry stated that Peter was in fact too tall to have been the person who was driving the car. When it comes to the fingerprint, Ray attempted to prove that the police had fabricated the print using a cast of his right index finger. However, poor record-keeping by the police tarnished this theory. Firstly, there was no specifics about the casts that were taken, which meant that there was no way to prove that there was a cast which was capable of reproducing a print of his right index finger. And secondly, there were discrepancies in the details of when the photographs of the print had been taken, making it difficult for Ray to establish a timeline of when the print may have been fabricated. Despite this evidence raising some doubts, particularly around the inability to identify Peter, on the 4th of March, 1983, Ray and Peter were convicted on all counts, and their youngest brother, Brian, was convicted of the counts relating to the swindle, but not the break and enter or arson offences. Why was Ray sentenced to more? He was given more of a ringleader role. Mm. And so Peter presumably would have just, at his sentencing, his lawyer would have been like, oh no, he was led astray by his older brother. And that probably right. took a couple of years off. Although Peter was the one, like, allegedly mucking about on the day. Mm. But it was, it was Ray's finger on the check. And it was his, he was the mastermind. It was his big brain. Yeah. And Brian, it was Brian's nothing. Brian actually got stitched up here. Yeah, biggest stitch up. The three brothers maintained their innocence and immediately lodged a number of appeals in an attempt to clear their name. These appeals largely centred around the Mickelbergs' belief that they had been framed by the Western Australia police. Brian was the first to succeed in court. After serving just nine months of his 12-year sentence, the Court of Criminal Appeal in Western Australia 
quashed Brian's convictions, and he was released immediately. Ray and Peter didn't have the same fate, remaining in prison and continuing the campaign for their release from the inside. Two years later, as Ray and Peter's legal appeals continued, the Mickelberg family were dealt another blow. Brian, a qualified pilot, was killed in a light aircraft crash on the 27th of February 1986. He was flying his twin-engine Aero Commander near the Canning Dam in the southwest of Perth when it ran out of fuel and crashed. God damn it. That sucks. Yeah. That is the worst string of luck I have ever heard. Mm. Mm. Brian. Brian. You know, Brian got swindled. He really did, didn't he? It's, like, unbelievably shit. You, like, can't write how shit that is. That is, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty tragic. On the flip side of the coin, after the success of solving the Perth Mint mystery, lead detective Don Hancock's career took off. Don became the officer in charge of the criminal investigation branch in 1989, where he remained until his retirement in 1994. After this, Don was in search of the quiet life and moved to Aurobanda, a virtual ghost town to the northwest of Kalgoorlie. The area used to be a prosperous gold mining town, and mining operations still continue there, but there's no stable population. Don was managing the Aurobanda Inn, a historical pub, but was definitely not living the quiet life. In October 2000, a group from the Gypsy Joker Motorcycle Club rolled into Aurobanda. Originally from the US, the Gypsy Jokers are now one of the most notorious motorcycle clubs with branches in Australia, Germany, South Africa, and Norway. The group gathered at the Aurobanda Inn, but publican Don Hancock kicked them out shortly after as they were abusing Hancock's daughter, who was working as a barmaid. One specific man, William Grierson, had allegedly been making obscene comments towards Don's daughter. After being removed from the pub, the group set up camp in town for the night. While they were sitting around a campfire, William Grierson was fatally shot. Because of the earlier incident at the inn, the Gypsy Jokers suspected that Don was responsible for the hit. Apparently Don was an amazing shot. Damn. Yeah. He had great marksmanship. The man just gets more and more interesting. I know. He's full of surprises. He's kind of a dick. But, yes. like, you can't help but be a bit impressed and, and weirded out as well. Yeah. You're like, why'd you do that? But also, damn, you there did was that. a lot of things where you're like, why did you do that? Yeah. To do his job. He was very committed to doing his job, whatever he thought the job was. Mm. That was his thing. Definitely wasn't afraid to break the rules. Adding to the suspicions, Don left town shortly after this incident, travelling several hundred kilometres back to Perth. Here, he consulted a well-known criminal lawyer and didn't assist police when he was questioned about the matter. Don's status within the police force, as well as a lack of evidence to support his motive, meant that the matter wasn't pursued. Police had failed to conduct routine forensic tests and had also failed to search Don's home. By September 2001, the Gypsy Jokers were looking for revenge. Don Hancock had attended the races in Perth and had driven home with a friend and bookmaker, Lou Lewis. When Don arrived back at his home, a car bomb which had been hidden in his vehicle was detonated remotely, killing Don and Lou instantly and leaving an enormous crater in the road outside the Hancock home. It was established that this was a revenge killing committed by the Gypsy Jokers for the murder of William Grierson. In 2006, Joker Sid Reed was convicted for the murder and sentenced to life imprisonment, but this sentence was reduced after he provided police assistance. Poor Lou Lewis. Yeah. 
another character to just get stitched up. Yeah. He was just off to the races. And then he got blown up. Yeah. In a car. Yeah. What on earth? After Don's death, things began to look up for the Mickelberg brothers following a bombshell confession by Tony Lewandowski, who assisted in the original investigation. In 2002, Tony confessed to the fabrication of the admissions made by Peter, which had been the centre of the prosecution's case. He corroborated Peter's version of events, including the assault by Don at the police station, and said that the statements alleged to have been taken from Peter on the 26th of July 1982 were actually fabrications created by Don and Tony on the 2nd of September 1982. Tony referenced a conversation between the two men before Peter was brought to the station in July, where he expressed to Don that he didn't believe there was enough evidence, to which Don replied, quote, Don't worry, it will get better. In this statement, Tony acknowledged that he had given evidence about the statement at trials and subsequent appeals, but that all the evidence in relation to the confessions were false. Tony stated that he was empowered to speak up after Don's death, saying, quote, Now that Don Hancock is dead, I can't harm him, and I am now telling the truth. A couple of times I wanted to come clean, but there was no way I could go against Don. I don't know about that, Tony. It seems like Tony and Don had a very interesting relationship. Mm. And also Don seems scary as hell, Loki. Yeah, I wouldn't I would be scared to blab when he was alive as Don well. Don just killed that dude. Yeah, he would shoot you from a mile away. Yeah. So Tony, it's okay That's if okay. you were scared. Yeah. And that whole like he's dead now, I can't harm him concept is very interesting. You still be saying some stuff that will relate to his image. Mm, which is what we talked about last week. Mm. Or last fortnight. Yeah. With the Peter Ellis case and protecting someone's reputation after they're gone. Mm. But I think while Don was alive, it still was quite widely accepted that he was a bit corrupt. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't think Tony's really coming with anything new, but this is a bit of a bombshell. This was the case that kind of made Don's career. That's true. And to say it was all false? Huge. At this stage, Tony's mental health was struggling and he was described as a broken man. He said, quote, I have had 20 years of hell. I lost my business. I've lost my wife. I've lost my son. I've gained nothing out of this. I am now telling the truth. Tony was admitted to a psychiatric hospital after attempting to flee the country after his request for prosecutorial immunity was denied. He was arrested at the hospital and charged with 21 counts, including attempting to pervert the course of justice, making false statements, fabricating evidence, and perjury. He was permitted a bedside hearing to make a bail application, but after this was unsuccessful, he was taken to a secure psychiatric ward for further assessment. In 2004, the charges against Tony were thrown out of court. While this seemed to be the end of the saga, Tony's struggle was ongoing. Sadly, shortly after this, Tony took his own life. In light of this new evidence, the Micklebergs had their convictions brought before the Court of Criminal Appeal for the seventh and final time. Their convictions were finally quashed. While Peter and Ray had been released on parole in 1991 and 1992 respectively, they were still convicted criminals until this point. While the Micklebergs had been dragged through the legal system already, it seemed as though they weren't deterred, as they brought a series of civil claims for defamation, wrongful imprisonment, and to reclaim legal fees. They were initially awarded $658,672 to cover their legal fees for the two appeals. On top of this, both Peter and Ray received $500,000 in ex payments, 
which is where someone is able to compensate another for damage they have suffered without needing to admit fault or liability. While the brothers were campaigning for more compensation, this is still the largest ex gratia payment made in the history of Western Australia. The swindle had all the makings of a Hollywood crime, so it's not surprising that it's been the subject of a number of books and dramatic reenactments. In fact, it was a book written in 1985 which first made public allegations that the police force had fabricated the confessions and forged the fingerprint. The police union collected a $1 levy from all its members to fund legal action against the author, Avon Lovell, raising more than a million dollars. Are there a million members in the police union? I don't know. Maybe some people made a voluntary contribution. Oh, sure sounds like it. Maybe they felt strongly about the issue of people ousting police corruption and decided to put a lid on it and made an extra contribution. That would check out, wouldn't it? Mm. The numbers simply don't add up. Mm. One in every 28 people in Australia well, is this a police was in union member. 1985, so it wouldn't mean even oh. less. Like, Damn. I don't even know how many people there were then. One in 20 was a police <laughs> union member? Anyway. I don't think so. I don't think so either. The book was banned by the state government, but could still be found in the historical books section of the state library until the ban was eventually lifted. My god, the government too. Mm. Well, the police are the government. You think kinda. they've worked together or something. Mm. Undeterred, Lovell wrote another two books on the topic, one of which was also temporarily banned by the state government. Oh my, leave this man alone. He can write books. What can I say? This is some state censorship. Oh, book banning. Book banning. Two telemovies have also been made. The first was released in 1984, the year after the trial. The Great Gold Swindle was broadcast in Australia as well as Brazil and was released on videotape in France under the title Le Messinaire de l'Or, which I'm gonna say translates to <laughs> The Great Gold Swindle? <laughs> you reckon? No. Okay. Sounds like the... Mm, the mercenaire would definitely... That would be an adjective. The mercenary. That's not great. Yeah. It could be the mercenary. The mercenary. And I would hazard a guess that the law could be the gold mm. or the bank. What I'm saying is I have no idea what it means. But I said it nice. I said yeah. it okay. <laughs> That's the main thing. I will translate it now. Mm. Okay, so it actually is the gold mercenaries via Google Translate. Mm. The most recent depiction is in the 2012 telemovie The Great Mint Swindle. They thought, oh, damn. Mm. Someone's already done The Great Gold Swindle. What else could we do? The Great Mint Swindle. Tune in in four years for the Great Perth Swindle. Yeah. <laughs> Telemovies. Never really made the big screen. No, but it did make it to videotape in France. <laughs> if the big screen is like the gold screen, telemovies, the silver screen, videotape in France, the bronze screen. The bronze screen. <laughs> it's on the podium. Um, I have a funny story and I don't, I didn't know where to put it in. So I'm just going to tell you now. Great. It's actually not that funny. It was probably a horrible experience. While Ray was in prison, in Fremantle Prison is where he was, apparently a notoriously very rough prison, he had one of his fingers bitten off. No. He did. Was it his right index finger? I'm not sure. But one of them was bitten off. And I just thought this man was obsessed with his hands. He was in love with his hands. Yeah, he cast them. He cast them. Over and, then and over again. Someone said, yoink. There's a lot of um, strange poetic coincidences in this case. There is, isn't there? Mm. So, who swindled the gold bars? Amongst all this chaos, we forget that 
the gold bars were swindled. They're gone. $3.7 million worth of gold never has been found. No idea where it is. That is crazy. 68 kilograms worth. Where did it go? And what did you use it to do, you know? Whoever took it. What do you do with a big lump of gold? Sell it for money? Mm. Gold, that's one of those things that... It's like gold was the original Bitcoin. Right. So you can, like, exchange it for, like, money. But if you keep it, it will, like, appreciate. It'll get have more value. Normally. Yeah, but in a few years' time, you can't really just whip out three bars of gold. Yeah, I know. Maybe yeah. you can. Somewhere. In the, the black market. Mmm. True. Where it's not dodgy to do that. Mmm. Or do you, can you, like, just saw it off into little pieces? <laughs> yeah, what do you, like... Do you, like, take your gold bar to the bank and you're like, can I have a million dollars? What? Girl, I don't know. I would love to know. Mm. I'm as confused about this as I am about crypto, to be honest. Mm. So the brothers, did they do it or not? They might have. They might have had something to do with it. I don't think it was just them. It was definitely not Brian, I'll tell you that much. Because they, seemingly, they got it out of the country and, like, to, to somewhere. It's gone somewhere. So who has it, right? They never found it. They're mu- it mu- it's bigger than just the brothers. Yeah. That's my theory. Yeah. If it is them at all. But do I think the investigation was cooked? Yes. It was fabricated. And aside from the singular fingerprint on the check... Maybe someone just put that on there. I have no idea. Mm. Maybe that was already on there for some reason. I don't know. I don't know enough about checks. And those fires and break-ins, yeah, they were never linked to those. No. Crazy. It could very much have well not been them at all. Yeah. Unsolved. What are Ray and Peter up to now? They're still pissed, but I don't think we've really heard from them since, like, 2008. Right. Maybe, like, 2011, around then. Mm. They, they were still trying to, like, get money, and then the West Australian legal aid tried to, like, skim a bit off their ex-gratia payment for their legal fees. They wanted, like, $150,000 or something in fees, Mm. but they didn't get it. They took it to court, and the court was like, no. Yeah, okay. Your legal aid. And I'm assuming the investigation was so botched that, like, there were never any other leads. Yeah. Because they were barely a lead to begin with. Yeah, and they just were so focused on getting evidence that linked the Mickelberg brothers, that they probably just ignored anything else that was potentially there. Very one-track mind investigation. True. So I guess we'll never know unless someone comes out and is like, it was me. Unless someone turns up with 49 gold bars, they're yeah. like, I did the Perth great mint swindle. They just turn up at the Perth mint. They're like, can I cash these in, actually? <laughs> as well as this one hand cast <laughs> mm, yeah. that I stole from mm. Raymond. Is this worth anything? <laughs> Interesting tale, though. Very interesting. We hope you enjoy our new audio experience. Yeah. I very much enjoyed our new audio experience. Mm. It feels very profesh. Yeah. We, we, we're just not in the back of a car anymore. Sitting at a desk. We used to sit our old microphone in a mug. Because <laughs> we didn't have a stand. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you guys realise how bootleg this operation truly is. Has been up to now. Like, if you've been enjoying all these episodes up to now, you've been listening to a truly bootleg setup. Yeah. But you got to make it work. Yeah, and now we've grown, you know? Mm. So sometimes you just got to see it out. Mm. So thanks for doing that. Thanks for seeing it out. Thanks for still being here. 
Thanks for listening today. And if you just tuned in today, aren't you lucky? You're very lucky. You haven't had to sit through the <laughs> the last year of <laughs> our more amateur days. Mm. Great. Well, maybe we should watch this movie. I think we should, and we'll give a little review on the on the gram or something. Yeah. We'll post some stories about what we think. Sweet. All right, then. I guess we'll see you guys in a couple weeks. See you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.